It was not the best of times. Some may have even thought it the worst. It was a dark time, certainly, for the people of God in Judah. An age of compromise for some, and oppression and injustice for most. But in the midst of that darkness, an age of light was beginning to dawn. The story of that new light involves a tale of two kings. One of those kings operated by the values of the old age, the age of darkness. And the other king would forge a new way of being king, a new set of values, a new light. That deep contrast between two different ways of being king, really true kingship and false kingship, lies at the heart of the story of Herod and his pursuit of Jesus. And invites us to ask, what does it mean for, to be king? What does it mean for Jesus to be king? Given the contrast between him and this parody king, Herod. That contrast invites us to reflect on this deep central reality that we can either serve ourselves or we can serve our king, Jesus. Herod's story begins in Matthew chapter 2. We've just heard about the birth of Jesus in chapter 1, kind of from Joseph's perspective. In Luke, we get Mary's perspective. We've heard about how the angel comes and tells Joseph about the child who is coming. And then in chapter 2, we learn about King Herod. Now, Herod uh, discovers Jesus through these uh, wise men, the New Revised Standard Version calls them, Magi is the word that we often hear them called. These guys have traveled in. Uh, it doesn't say there's three of them specifically, but they do have three gifts. So every time uh, you hear about the three Magi or the three wise men, uh, remember that we don't actually get that number in the text. Some We just sort of has, have, have imported that uh, based on the three gifts. Uh, there's your Bible trivia for uh, Christmas Eve family celebrations. How many wise men were there? We don't know. Uh, but they come, they come from the east, they come to Jerusalem, and they're seeking a king. And so they go to Herod, they go to Jerusalem, they go to the capital city, which is where you would expect a king to be born, to be found in the capital city. They're astrologers, stargazers, they read the heavens and look for signs, and they've seen a star, and it's led them here to find the one born of the king of the Jews. And Herod responds with fear, doesn't he? Which is kind of strange, isn't it? Because here he is in his palace and his comfortable surroundings with soldiers and guards and servants. And yet his response to the news that a child had been born somewhere nearby that he doesn't know about creates fear in him. And the text says all of Jerusalem was frightened with him. Why was this great and powerful king afraid of this baby? It helps to know a little bit of Herod's story. Herod had a background marked by compromise and paranoia. 
He compromised with the Romans to be in power. He's kind of a puppet king ruling uh, at the end of the strings that stretched all the way back to Rome. So he, did, he could stay in power as long as he did what the empire told him to do. He was happy with that scenario. He was comfortable, lived in a fancy house and had people to serve his needs. He had power. What's a little compromise if you can live in comfort? He was also marked by paranoia because he constantly thought that people were plotting against him to take his kingship from him. He even executed some of his wives, more than one, and some of his children because he thought they were involved in plots against him. So that's this guy, right? Now to top it off, Herod was what you would call an Idumean. You might have looked that one up lately. I didn't think so. Here's what it means. You remember Jacob and Esau? Sons of Abraham, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and he was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Esau, his descendants were called, guess what? Idumeans. So Herod was a descendant of Esau, not Jacob. He wasn't even Jewish, and yet he was ruling as king of the Jews in Judea. So when these magi, the wise men, show up in Jerusalem saying they've come to find the one born king of the Jews, the one who was not born king of the Jews, Herod, all of a sudden got very nervous and was frightened. Because if Jesus was legit, was born, descended of David, king of the Jews, then Herod would have to yield his throne to this new king. So you can see why Herod was afraid. He knows he's illegitimate. And his response is to grasp at power, manipulate the circumstances, and serve himself to serve his own ends so that he can maintain his comfort and his prestige and his power. And he creates this... He, he, He's a schemer, so he schemes, calls the wise men back in, pretends to want to worship the new, to pay homage to the new king, to, to give reverence to him, but he has a secret plan he hasn't told them about. So he brings them in, again, meets with them secretly, says, You go out, you worship the, or you go find where the new king is. I've consulted with, uh, with my, uh, my own advisors, they say Bethlehem's the place, so head over there, you find him, you come back, let me know, and I'll come back with you, and we'll all revere him together. And all the time, he's kind of looking at his guys over in the corner, throwing a wink at him, because he's got the real plan, scheming to do away with Jesus. The wise men don't know, so they head off. They find baby Jesus, they give their gifts, Three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They pay him homage. They revere him. They worship him. Now, Herod is still back in his castle scheming. And I wonder if we ever ask the question, what should he have done? 
As I was reflecting on this text this week, I'm not sure I've ever even asked that question. Right? Here's just a bad guy. When we got the bad guy, we know what he did, and we vilify him, and he deserves it, and we go after him, and he's just, he's the bad guy in the Christmas story. It would be worth to ask, you know, what should he have done? And what th- would things have been like had he done what he ought to have done? What should Herod have done? He should have rushed along with the Magi to the place where Jesus was and thrown himself on the ground to worship him. That's where this should have gone. It's about worship. You heard the word homage repeated over and over and over again. We don't really use that word anymore, but it's about this this reverence, this offering of worship, this giving of worth. Jesus is the one who deserves it. And Matthew tells us over and over and over and over again, Jesus deserves it. Herod wants it, but Jesus deserves it. And so Herod's in a position where he's got to decide, is he going to serve himself or is he going to serve the true king, the one king, the baby king. He ought to be honoring and glorifying Jesus, who is Emmanuel, God with us. Who is, and, and he knows that he's dealing with the Messiah. Earlier in the text, when he calls his advisors together, he asks them, where's the Messiah? Where's the Christ to be born? He knows, he's acknowledging in the question that God is at work. All through the Old Testament is this hope for the day when God would raise up one anointed figure who would rescue his people, who would redeem them, who would save them from oppression, save them from sin, bring them into the fullness of reconciled life with their God. And that person would be the Messiah. Herod hears this born king of the Jews thing, and that's where his mind goes. You go read the Old Testament. Apparently Herod wasn't familiar with it enough himself, so he has to have his, his, uh, his, his Bible scholar friends do it for him. You go read it, and you go figure out where this guy is so we can deal with him. He sees the hand of God at work, and instead of surrendering and offering himself in worship to God in Christ, He plots against him to save his own power and prestige. We can serve ourselves or we can serve Jesus. We can serve ourselves or we can serve the king. The story invites us to ask, how are we answering that question? And it's not a question to be answered one time, is it? It's a question that has to be answered every day when we open our eyes. Who will I serve today? Am I going to go into this day focused on my agenda, my desires, my plans, what I want, protecting my little kingdom? Or will I go into this day offering myself to Jesus? for whatever he wants to do. Matthew wants his readers asking those kinds of questions. Because you got to pick. We can serve ourselves, or we can serve our king. 
So Herod's plan doesn't work out quite the way he intended. The Magi are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, so they head off. They pull out their maps and pick another route and head off in another direction. You can just sort of see Herod. Maybe you can picture it in your mind with me. Sitting in his throne room, scratching his chin, anxious. When, have, they, have they come back? Somebody's watching on the wall. Have they returned? Where is? Do you have your sword sharpened? Are you ready? Are the troops ready to go? Where, have they come back? Where is this Messiah? You know, that's his attitude. And imagine what it was like for him when it finally dawned on him, they're not coming back. <laughs> However long it took, they didn't show. And so what does he do? He sends his troops to Bethlehem to slay every child in the range where he thinks Jesus might be. Ultimate self-service. <laughs> when others are considered dispensable. So that this guy can hold on to what he wants. Others are dehumanized. Destroyed so that this puppet king can hold on to the little power he has. He serves himself in the most vile way by going after people who couldn't defend themselves for his own ends. Now Jesus isn't there when the troops show up. Again, Joseph is warned, take Mary and the child away. And they escape to Egypt. Not the first time Abraham's family and children have escaped to Egypt. As we read through this text and as we think about who Jesus is and where the Gospel of Matthew is going, we begin to see a theme emerge. What does a king's power look like? How does he get it? How does he hold it? And what does he do with it? We get this picture of Herod, who will make a deal with the empire to keep his power, kill children to hold on to it. But as we read through the Gospels, we find Jesus, the one born king of the Jews, operating in a very different way. We get into chapter 4 and read the familiar temptations of Jesus. And what is one of those temptations? The tempter says, if you worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You think Herod's got a lot to offer? You think he's got some kingdom? You think the Roman Empire's got a lot? Worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Caesar won't stand to compare. Jesus understands the problem isn't the power, the problem is how you get it. And he's unwilling to worship the devil to gain influence, prestige, power, and control. He is not there to serve himself. His 
life and his character, his kingship, his reign is marked by self-giving love. The Gospels continue. He calls disciples together, forms them into a small group. They study together. They pray together. Jesus instructs them. And Jesus begins to exercise authority, power. But the power is not something that he keeps to himself, is it? Consider the time he demonstrated his power by feeding 5,000 people with just a few fish and loaves of bread. Striking about that is a thing we don't always notice. The disciples come to Jesus, you remember this, and, hey, you've been preaching all day. Everybody's hungry. We're way past lunchtime. We need to send these folks home and get some, let them get something to eat. And Jesus responds. You remember what he says? He doesn't say, okay, I'll take care of it. He doesn't say, okay, dismiss church. He says, instead, you feed them. Here's a king, and he's got the power. But instead of just kind of saying, hey, you guys, watch this. Let me just show you what I can do. Boom, fish and loaves all over the place. Instead, he says, you feed them. Right? This king isn't about hoarding the power. He's not, about, he's not afraid of other people being involved in the ministry. He's not trying to protect his little kingdom. He's not walling himself off saying, you know, this is my thing. This is my power. This is my ministry. This is my job. You go find your own. He doesn't have that. He's not selfish with it. Instead, he uses his power. He uses his authority to put his followers, his representatives, in a place to touch other people's lives. Which makes me wonder, what is Jesus doing to put us in a place to touch other people's lives? Maybe it's leading a small group. Maybe it's fixing breakfast. Maybe it's passing out bulletins and brochures. Maybe it's scrubbing the toilets. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it. Maybe it's Get on a plane to fly across a border to go dig a trench so that some orphans can have a pavilion to meet family members. Maybe it's checking flood buckets in Louisiana. Maybe it's something else that the Lord hasn't even opened our eyes to see yet. The question is, how is Jesus, King Jesus, putting us in a position to use his power to transform the lives of the people around us, our neighbors and the nations. The contrast is so stark between one king who just grabs at powers and slaughters people who threaten his position and the one king, Jesus, who doesn't wall himself off, but puts other people in a position to exert authority and influence. The theme of power continues in Matthew's Gospel. All the way to the cross, 
Remember what was written over Jesus' head when he went to the cross? That was the place of his coronation for all the world to see. Here's the one born king of the Jews. And for him, being a king doesn't mean taking a sword to people who threaten his power. It means allowing himself to be given sacrificially for us. No matter who we are, where we're from, or what our last name is, or what our profession is, all of us. That's one of the things that comes through in the story of the Magi, isn't it? These guys ain't from around here. <laughs> they don't speak the same language. I mean, I guess maybe they do a little bit because they got to talk to Herod some, but they, they're not locals. They're not a part of Israel. They're not Judeans. They're, from, they're even more removed from Judah than Herod. They are from another country. They are of a different ethnicity. And they are the first ones, one of, some of the first ones. Matthew's Gospel, we hear about the Magi. Luke, we hear about the shepherds. And they are there because Matthew and Luke want all of us to know that this king is a king for everybody. He brings all people to himself, all nations, everyone. So he can make them whole. So that his blood can cleanse them. So that he can make them new. That's what he does with his power. He makes us new. All of us, all the way. It's very hard to experience that if we are bent on self-service. It's very hard to experience that if we are bent on self-service. But when the Holy Spirit begins to reproduce the character of Jesus in us, the self-sacrificial character of Jesus in us, where we surrender to the one who loves us and gave himself for us, then we begin to find out what it means to live life to its full. The king is revealed on the cross and demonstrated in the resurrection. And then the whole gospel really comes to its climax with this moment where Jesus says, all power and all authority has been given to me. That's what kings want, isn't it? That's what Herod wanted, power and authority. That's what Caesar wanted, power and authority. Turns out, that's what the enemy offered to Jesus, power and authority. And had he taken that deal and worshipped the tempter, he would have gone about it the wrong way. See, the problem isn't the power, the problem is how you get it and what you do with it. The real power isn't exerting force, it's self-giving love and it's gained not by self-serving means but by self-giving character and at the end of the gospel Jesus has what everyone was promising you want to be king we'll make you king here are the conditions when real kingship is found in the death and resurrection 
that he suffered and that he experienced, that we might be reconciled to God and give it new life. And what does he say following that? All power and authority has been given to me. King Jesus, right? Universal authority. And what does he say? Disciple the nations. Because after all, they belong to Jesus. Nothing's off limits to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all his. It's been given to him. The nations have been made his inheritance. And he doesn't hold that back from his brothers and sisters. He gives it. Go. Disciple the nations. Teach them to obey me. Like, imagine what a world would be like if the nations obeyed Jesus. Like, just take a minute and think about that. Would you like to live in a world where the nations obey Jesus? Do you realize that's what he's told us to do? <laughs> like, that's the one thing we're supposed to be up to. There's a lot of nations out there. They start next door and go from there. Teach them to obey me. That's the world that God, that's the world Jesus wants. And if we think about it, I suspect it's the world we want. A world marked by his self-giving love. Now he's got to do that in us. We have to know what he commanded. We have to obediently go and teach others. That's why we talk about this discipleship path, worship, connect, serve. That pathway is how we follow him. It's what gets us in a position to fulfill his commission. But this is what he does with his power. He turns the world into a place all of us want to live. Teach the nations to obey everything I've commanded you. Baptize them. Bring them into my church that I'm building. And I'll be with you. This king doesn't withhold his presence. He gives it over and over and over again. Don't you want to serve someone like that? Someone whose being is marked by self-giving love. That's the image of the manger. the image of the cross it's the story from beginning to end God is self-giving love and when we are surrendered to him he reproduces that in us so my hope and my prayer for all of us is that this Christmas and this new year the Lord Jesus Christ will give us the grace. You can count on his grace. To take the next step, whatever it is, in what he's calling us to do. We can't serve ourselves if we want to be a part of that. We serve the king.